Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 tonight. That's on page 1001. Tonight we look at Hebrews 1 verses 4 uh, through 9. We'll read through 14, but we'll be picking up some of that next week. In the first four verses, we saw that Christ is a better revelation of God than is found in any of the prophets of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean they were wrong, uh, but they were promise and he is fulfillment. And let me just add a, a, a word of humor, if I may. In my prayer, I did not prophetically declare somebody in the congregation with child who is not, but sensitive ears might have heard me. She actually just had her baby and we're praying for uh, her young one. But uh, back to the text. Jesus is a better revelation of God. He's a better prophet than the Old Testament prophets. Tonight we see that he is also superior to the angels. And so we need to think about that because God wants us to think about that. Why is Christ better than the angels? Hebrews chapter 1, this is the word of God. And for the sake of the reading, to pick it up uh, at the start of a sentence as the ESV reads, in the middle of verse 3 and down through verse 14, this is the word of God. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. 
And show us, we pray, the glory of Christ above all. And so do good to our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. A researcher researcher named Barky at the Hungarian National Gallery was watching the 1999 film Stuart Little with his uh, young daughter in the year 2009, 10 years after it came out, when he noticed what appeared to be a famous missing painting by the Hungarian avant-garde artist Robert Bereni. In the movie, it was hanging on the wall of the Stuart Little family's home. Barky couldn't be sure because he had only ever seen a painting of it in photograph by black and white. You see, the painting had been missing since the 1920s. But he was curious enough as a researcher that he sent off an email to the producers of the film, Sony and Columbia. Two years later, he received a reply from the former production designer who worked on the film. Turns out that the painting was indeed Bereni's Sleeping Lady with Black Vase. The production designer had had no idea. She had just snapped it up for the next to nothing price at an antique shop in Pasadena, California, thinking its avant-garde elegance was perfect for Stuart Little's living room. The designer who had still had the painting on her wall at the time had then sold it, having found out, to an art collector who brought it to uh, Budapest where it was sold for over a quarter of a million dollars. You, if you saw Stuart Little, your eyes probably saw that painting, but you didn't know what was right in front of your face, nor did any of the actors or producers or movie studios at the time. Sometimes it can be right before you, and you don't even know it. And it takes a scholar to show you the masterpiece. Well, the writer of Hebrews is that scholar. His first audience was in danger of thinking too little of Jesus and dismissing him, and thinking too much of angels and being enamored in ways they ought not. And so he says to them, let me show you why Jesus is better even than angels. And so I want to ask three questions tonight of the text. I want to ask three questions. And then under the third question, I want to make three points. And under the third point, I want to make three sub-points. I know that sounds like a lot. And then uh, by way of application, I just want to ask you three or four questions as we go. Okay, three questions tonight of the passage. One, what is his, what is his assertion? Two, why do they need to hear it? Why do we? Three, how does he prove it? Which is the bulk of the passage. We'll just look at verses four to nine this evening. What is his assertion? Well, in verses one to three, if you were with us and you remember, he'd been saying things to summarize it. Jesus is the prophet priest and king that God has always promised he is the prophet through whom God reveals himself better than he did through the prophets of old he's also the priest 
the priest who provided purification for sin, verse 3. And he's also the king. He was raised. He ascended. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's at the, the right hand of power and authority and rule. He's prophet, priest, and king. Verse 4 then makes a comparison. It says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior than theirs. Now, perhaps we should pause here and say a little bit about angels. Obviously, they were very interested in angels. That's why he has to build this argument. So let's say a few things about angels. For starters, angels, the word means or comes from the word messenger. In the Old Testament, the word appears over 100 times. In the New Testament, it appears over 160 times. And the Bible demonstrates that angels are real, intelligent, personal created beings which although immaterial themselves can interact with God's creation they can think they can speak they can offer praise and worship to God and they are typically unseen by us though on rare occasions they have manifested themselves visibly to people sometimes in the form of humans sometimes in angelic forms such that people bowed before them in fear and even thought to worship But we're told not to. Now, we don't have any idea how many angels there are. But judging from the descriptions of them in books like the book of Revelation, there are 10,000 times 10,000, which is sort of the largest Greek number by the largest Greek number multiplied. There also appear to be some kind of order or hierarchy within the angelic realm, as well as being different kinds of angels. And I say that uh, because if you were to look at Jude chapter 9, it says that Michael is described as the archangel, meaning he's the head angel or has some sort of authority over other angels. The only other elect angel named in the Bible by name is Gabriel. And you remember him perhaps from the, the task he was sent on to speak. Uh, to Zechariah and to Mary to make the very important announcement about John and Jesus. We also see that there are beings called cherubim and seraphim, which seem to have the task of guarding and protecting things. So, for instance, you remember that these angels guarded the entrance, back at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, preventing Adam and Eve from returning to the Garden But be that as it may, the writer is saying, now look, Jesus is far better than angels. And the name he has is better. Their name means messenger. His name means son. Now, as soon as you say that, how can you talk about the eternal son of God becoming much better than angels? Isn't that strange language? That seems odd. If he's the eternal God, and he is, then of course he's always been superior to angels. Why do you argue that he has become superior to angels? And it's because the writer here is thinking of the Son as the incarnate Son, the Christ, God in the flesh, the God-man in his role as the mediator between God and man, putting his hand, as it were, on both. So that 
in the incarnation, in his enfleshment, taking on human nature, suffering weakness, and going to the cross, he appeared, as it were, for a little time, lower than the angels. But because of his obedience and his faithfulness and his finished work of atonement, he was exalted above the angels. And there was a famous heretic in early 4th century Christianity named Arius who taught that Christ was an angelic-like exalted created being. In other words, that he was something more than human, but something less than God. That's the same view held by Jehovah's Witnesses today. But Arius utterly misunderstood what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus isn't less than God, and he isn't more than human. He's not some in-between creature with some sort of super angelic status or... Uh, Even more, he's not beneath the angels. His point is that he's divine. He's the divine son. That point was established in verses 1 to 3. And he's going to build that argument in verses 5 to 14. So they had some kind of fixation with angels and they needed to hear about Jesus. Now, why do they need to hear that he's superior? Why do they need to hear it? It's not because they were tempted to worship angels. Not this congregation, it would appear. These were, after all... Jews. This is the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, most of them had probably been raised in very uh, faithful, orthodox Jewish homes. And they knew we worship but one God only, the one true and living God. Uh, although you do remember that Paul in Colossians had to write a book and tell people not to worship angels. But that book was written to the people at Colossae who were more Gentile-like, who didn't know any better. Uh, But here, they probably weren't tempted so much to worship angels uh, as they were to just think of Jesus as something less than angels. And so that kind of becomes obvious the way that he's correcting them. And it's um, also, and here's the other reason, it's also because uh, there was a whole group of people, we know their name is the the Essenes, They they lived in Palestine near the Dead Sea, And what we know about what they believed, they were a Jewish sect, is that they believed uh, that the Old Testament spoke about the Messiah uh, and spoke about the Messiah uh, with promises of a coming prophet and a coming priest and a coming king, but divided those three offices uh, by three different people. In other words, uh, they knew that there was a coming promised Messiah. They wanted that Messiah to come. They also believed that there would be a prophet in fulfillment of messianic promises. They also believed that there would be a Messiah-type priest who would come in the line of Aaron. And they also believed that there would be a Messiah king who would come in the line of David. And the priestly Messiah would be in charge of the revitalization of the spiritual life of the people of God. And the kingly Messiah would be in charge of the revitalization of the national life and government of the people of God. Uh, We saw that there were even Old Testament uh, expectations at the time of Jesus for a coming prophet. We read in John. So they understood that there there were these anointed offices. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. 
Kings were anointed. They knew there was a coming future prophet, a coming future priest, a coming future king. But they divided these offices in three and they didn't see, as the writer of Hebrews says, that they came to fulfillment in one person, the Messiah. And there's one other thing that they believed. They believed that these three figures would be underneath one greater figure. That greater figure was going to be Michael the archangel who would have ruling authority over the work of these three who were to come. And you understand then how exactly that fits with what the author is writing about here. He's arguing against that view. He's saying Jesus is infinitely higher than all angels including Michael the archangel. And so he's trying to persuade them. And so he invites them to a Bible study. He says, now look, turn in your Old Testament with me and let me show you these things. And there he proves Jesus is superior. So that's our third question tonight. How does he prove it? How does he prove it? What I want to do, there are seven Old Testament quotations. Uh, For the sake of time this evening uh, and exploration, we'll look at just the first five. And we'll look at the first five lumped together under three headings. Okay, so there's your second three. Number one heading, unlike angels, how is Jesus better? Unlike angels, Jesus is the begotten son of the father. Go back to your text and look at verse five. For to which of the angels did God say, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's the son of the father. He quotes here Psalm 2 which was a messianic psalm, which promised at verse 7, the anointed one, God's anointed king. And so it was, a, it was about the Messiah promised to the Jews, and he goes back to Psalm 2, and he goes uh, here at verse 7, quoting him exactly. And he, uh, and he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Now that's weird language. What does that mean? Uh, what is the day that... Today refers to. Hasn't Jesus always been the Son of God? Hasn't he always had uh, the name that's greater uh, than all other names? The name of Son of God. And isn't that the point, actually, of John 3.16? That God so loved the world that he sent his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What then does it mean that today uh, I have begotten you? Uh, Well, first of all, Jesus certainly is and always has been the Son of God. But other scriptures say, or help us to understand, that what Psalm 2 is referring to, and what Hebrews 1 is referring to, is not his eternal sonship, but actually his resurrection. And why do I say that? Well, if you look with me at Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 33, Paul, in preaching about Jesus said to them this, and we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, Paul says, what did God promise? He promised good news. 
What did God do? He fulfilled that promise of good news. When did he fulfill it? In the resurrection of Jesus. And the idea of begetting here is that of declaring Jesus to the full or manifesting Jesus to the full that he is indeed the Son of God in his resurrection with power from the dead. Paul speaks of this elsewhere in Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Where in Romans 1 verse 4 he says Jesus was quote declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's always been the eternal son but in the resurrection he is declared and manifested to be with power by the spirit the, the, the begotten of God. And so he is the son the begotten of the father because of his resurrection. Then he back in Hebrews 1 he quotes a second uh, Old Testament passage here he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14 where he says I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son that's a direct quote from 2 Samuel 7 14 it was originally spoken by the prophet Nathan to King David It was a promise from God and a a promise and a prophecy from God given to David on account of David's desire to build a house for the Lord. It's a famous passage. God had uh, uh, David out of his love for the Lord looked around and he saw that he was living in a palace but that the Lord was still dwelling in the midst of the people in a tent and he said, Lord... Let me build a house for you. And the Lord turns around and he says, David, let me build a house for you. Now it's a play on the word house. The Hebrew word house means one of three things. It can mean dynasty. It can mean temple. um, And it can mean palace. And so what happens is David uh, says, Lord, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And the Lord says, no, 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 David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And in the midst of that promise, then, he says there's going to be a succession of sons upon the throne, uh, the throne of that kingdom. And in 2 Samuel 7, 14, he highlighted or stressed uh, that I will be a father to the king of this dynasty. And he will be a son to me. That promise then had a near fulfillment and a future and ultimate fulfillment. It had a near fulfillment in David's own son Solomon who became king and who did build the the house and the temple for God and did rule as the king. But you know that Solomon was a flawed man. Solomon was a mortal man. His kingdom did not go on under his own reign And it did go on for some 400 years, but uh, you know that that kingdom was a disaster ultimately because of the sin of the kings. But the promise did not end. God in the fullness of time brought forth David's greater son, Jesus himself. And so he fulfilled this promise, I will be a father to him. And he will be my son. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And the point, of course, is this. It's very simple. To which of the angels did God ever say these things? None. 
And I would say by way of application to you, if this is what God the Father thinks of God the Son, then you should think this too. Why would you think something different? And I would add, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, that concerning these Old Testament prophecies, promises or prophecies of the coming sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories of the Christ, he says that even angels long to look into these things. He's basically saying to you, what a blessing that you have the, the eternal Son of God and flesh crucified and raised on your behalf for your salvation. The angels are marveling, mystified uh, by it. They're curious about it. They long to look into this. They want to know more about this redemption by this God for these horrible people who are traitors to his throne, whom he would so love and rescue. And I would say to us, if angels are curious about these things, why not you? If the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with Him I am well pleased, listen to Him. Why not listen to Him? Now the second argument that the writer turns to, having looked at those two passages, his second argument for the superiority of Christ over angels is uh, that the angels worship the firstborn Son. And to prove that, back in Hebrews chapter 1, he cites Psalm 97, either Psalm 97 verse 7 uh, or Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. This is again verse 6 where he says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, quote, let all God's angels worship him. That last part of verse 6 is found in both those passages. Now, if you were to turn there in most of your Bibles, you wouldn't find them. Not just like that. And the reason is uh, the writer is quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Whereas you and I, I'm assuming probably all of us have a Old Testament that was translated from the Hebrew. And so actually what you'll find is that it reads something uh, like this, um, that sons of God. We know that the expression sons of God is often of reference to angels. And when the Hebrew was translated to Greek, the translators translated to angel. And under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of the book of Hebrews has given us that translation. Let all God's angels worship him or let all the sons of God worship him. They are commanded to do so. And they have done so. You remember at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, the announcement came to the shepherds out in the fields at night by what? By angels who appeared to the shepherds and said, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you who is Christ the Lord. And then it says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. They worship Jesus. If angels worship him, why not you? Third point. The writer here then moves on. Verse, verses 7 and 8. And actually, verse 7 is a quote. 
and verse 8 and 9 are a quote, and they are um, they're quoted in contrast. And his point is that whereas angels are God's servants, Christ is God and King. Look at verse 7. Here he quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels, he says, are servants. They do God's bidding. They execute God's will. Perhaps he means they do it like wind and flame do it. Just as wind and flames are God's servants, so angels are. Perhaps he means that the wind and the flame are under the authority of angels to go and do whatever the angels command them so that where you see wind and flame, you see the handiwork of God via his angels doing his bidding. But in either case, they minister, but Christ rules. They serve, but he has sovereignty. And that's the point. The contrast makes it clear in verse 8. He quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Look at that. And uh, if you later want to turn to Psalm 45, you'll know that Psalm, you'll see that Psalm 45 is another messianic psalm. It's another promise of the Messiah. In this case, it's a wedding psalm. It's depicting a royal bride as she prepares to enter into marriage with the king. In fact, at, at towards the end of verses 13 and 14, it says, "All glorious is the princess in her chamber." with robes interwoven with gold in many colored robes she is led to the king the psalm begins not with that but it begins with her extolling the king there's a throbbing in her heart she celebrates in verses 1 to 5 her hands, his handsome good looks she celebrates his royal splendor his majesty his mighty strength the dignity of his cause. And then at verse 6 in Psalm 45, she explodes the bounds of propriety. She suddenly exclaims, The King, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. She's talking to her husband. And there the writer of Hebrews is picking it up. And you can understand why that's a messianic psalm. There was no king of Israel who was God. But it's a messianic psalm. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, by quoting that, that Jesus is divine. That God the Father addresses God the Son here. Your throne, O God, is forever. So here is irrefutable proof that both the Old Testament and the New Testament consider Jesus divine as God and more than God as king. And remember I said there were three questions with three points and three subpoints. Well, we're on now the three subpoints of the last part. Notice what this passage goes on to say. It speaks of his continuation of his character and of his companions. In speaking of the king who is on his throne, God on his throne, Jesus the Son of God, the king, it speaks first of his continuation. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In 1902, 
a young English boy came down to breakfast to find his father reading the newspaper, which carried news of the preparations for the first coronation in Britain in 64 years. And in the middle of breakfast, the father turned to his wife and said, Oh, I am sorry to see this worded like that. And his wife said, What is it? Why, he replied, here's a proclamation that on a certain date, Prince Edward will be crowned king at Westminster. And there is no Deo Valente, no in Latin, God willing, appended to the phrase. And the word stuck in the young boy's mind because on the appointed date, the future Edward VII was ill with appendicitis and the coronation had to be postponed. That was the end of Queen Victoria's reign. She reigned 63 years and seven months. It's known as the Victorian era. She was the longest reigning monarch in Britain, dying at age 81 until just in this last year, uh, Queen Elizabeth surpassed her. She died, Victoria did, at the height of the powers of the British Empire in terms of political, economic, and military domination of the world. Yet for all its might, the Queen was dead and Great Britain could not carry out its planned coronation on the appointed date. The new king was ill. But the kingdom of Jesus isn't like that. He reigns forever and ever. There are no succession controversies. There are no interruptions in his rule. There is no weakness of mere mortals. The king lives never to die. That's his continuation. Secondly, his character is remarked on. The scepter, verse 8, end of it. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He's not only an everlasting ruler, he's a just ruler. In contrast to so many, the more power they get, the more wicked they act in this world. But it is not so with Christ. Why? Because he loved what is good and he hated what is evil. And he did that always. And that is a rock for you and me in a world of wicked rulers. In about the year 155 A.D., a Christian pastor named Polycarp was put to death for following Jesus. Polycarp was burned at the stake and eventually pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor as Lord. Of Jesus, he said, and this was his reason he wouldn't do it, 80 and 6 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. He has done me no wrong. How can I not follow him into the grave? He is good. That's his character. And lastly, his companions. There's a note at the end of verse 9. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We 
who believe in Jesus are among the companions of whom God speaks here. Christ is anointed with the oil of gladness in his triumphant entry into heaven where he has gone to rule and to prepare a place for us. And there is tremendous joy in heaven when he brings many sons and daughters to glory with him. And in the joy of that place, our joy will be great, but his joy is greater, the writer says. On earth, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but in heaven, he is a man of joy. Yours is the joy of being rescued. Yours is the joy of being with him. His is the joy of success in his mission. His is the joy of bringing us home to himself. No one is more glad of that than him. Not even the angels. Be glad in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great king, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God and Savior. And I pray that we would know him better than we do. And... Uh, know what it is to be blessed by him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and rejoice and sing.